ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Linda Ong, the CEO and co-founder of Cultique a cultural think tank which advises top brands and entertainment companies on culture issues. It's a strategy and insights venture from Civic, a Seacrest Global Group company. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Gabriella. You and I go way back and yes, you're overt, <laughs> not so way back, but way yeah, back. we don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and your overt focus on the importance of culture to every business has evolved and sharpened over time until we find ourselves here talking about your new venture, Cultique. Mm-hmm. So first, before we go any further, can you give me the elevator ride description of what Cultique is and does? Sure. Cultique is a premium boutique for cultural strategy and insights, which means that we tailor the view of culture for our clients, which could be a brand, um, you know, a marketer developing a new brand or relaunching a brand. It could be um, a programming executive developing a new piece of content or reviving an existing franchise. Uh, it could be a researcher trying to understand what is going on in certain subcultures, whether they maybe Latinx biculturals or soccer fans or black female viewers or Gen Z. Um, You know, we basically have a think tank of a coalition of 10 analysts and thinkers um, and, and a broader Uh, a broader group of what we call coalition adjacent uh, journalists, academics, experts, creators, artists, people we can tap into or find um, to really understand and, and deep dive into what is going on in the external culture so that companies can align their internal thinking and internal culture um, with the world. So what is um, Cultique's relationship to Civic? You were Civic's entertainment uh, their chief culture officer. Are you still filling that role or are you entirely focused on Cultique now? I thank you for asking. Entirely focused on Cultique, um, but we still have a very strong partnership with Civic. Civic is essentially our partner and our backer. Um, Cultique has its own PL, its own autonomy, its own brand, our own social handles. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at the relationship with Civic as um, a really amazing one where we're each additive to the other, but we have our own swim lanes. Mm-hmm. Our, our expertise is, uh, and our focus is much more, um, much more about using an outside in perspective to understand how clients can meet the moment in everything that they do. And as we know right now, culture is very unforgiving if you don't. So mm-hmm. some of our work is a minority of our work, I would say is risk management, right? Mm-hmm. Like how, if you're going to have a piece of content or a marketing and a marketing campaign, Um, You know, how do you make sure that you're not going to piss off the people you need to curry favor with? Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, we're also very proactive in that um, we do a lot of thought leadership work. We do landscapes. People want to get ahead of a market or understand where things are evolving to. 
that's um, another way that they use us. And I would say um, when when we were part of civic, we had the same discipline, but we didn't have really sort of the what I think is now kind of a really interesting muscle to be extremely experimental and um, really kind of pioneer and, and pilot new ways of talking about culture because culture is moving so fast today and people can't keep up. And even if they can, it's very difficult to separate your own personal view of culture from your brand and your businesses. And so that's really, that's where the customized um, and tailored approach comes in because we look at culture through the the filter of your brand, your business, and your audience. And so if I were to give you a, a report, Gabriella, that would look very different than somebody else's report, even though we might be looking at the th- same themes. Right. No, you describe it as a, a think tank. So are you writing white papers and conducting original research independently of client direction, or is it within the client, the client directs you to do these things? It's both. I mean, I think what's really interesting is we moved to a think tank model because we used to have independent analysts fielding their own work. But then what we found is that that person just had that, you know, we had subject matter experts that just kind of became silos and that it did not enable us to move really quickly when we had a lot of projects and a lot of change. So now pretty much everybody on the team is exposed to everything we're working on, has an opportunity to weigh in. We will have an analyst or or someone, some, sometimes it's my co-founder, Sarah Unger, sometimes it's myself, sometimes it's a, another person, run point to make sure the project gets done. Mm-hmm. But we're always, you know, we have on our Instagram at cultique.co, um, we're always posting the things that we're looking at and examining um, and working on. And some of those are for our own knowledge. Some of them are directly applied to clients, but, you know, we're looking at an ecosystem. So we're constantly just adding to our own team's knowledge. Right. When I go to Coltique's website, I see a a retro feeling list of of links Mm -hmm. and you've been featured in design books and worked in design and branding. So Mm -hmm. that isn't by accident. That's purposeful. So Mm -hmm. what is, what is the message? What are you communicating and why that choice? Well, first of all, when I had truth code for 16 years, and was trying to explain to everybody what I was doing, both in brand strategy and cultural analysis, people really had to be educated. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the trajectory of the word culture on Google Trends over the last 12 years since then, you'll see that a lot of people know what culture is now. So I don't feel there's a need to educate people as much through external materials. And because we are premium, we're a referral only business. We're not looking to sell in our external accounts. Okay. So we're not looking for clients. What so it's a resource. For, it's more of a... It's a resource, exactly. Okay. And, and I would say, you know, the website is really just kind of a, a tool. I think the real expression of our brand is on Instagram because it is a more visual medium, medium and we can put mixed media and have more conversations there. I think, you know, the the website is... I don't even know if it's a website. We call it a landing page. It's literally just, it is our workflow. What are we working on? What are we looking at? What's Mm -hmm. interesting us? And that's really what we decided to do is rather than explain what we do and who we are, we just wanted to show people what we, how we think. And, and that's why, you know, you know, the Instagram is interesting because people have said, 
they just said like, I love what you're doing, even though nobody can really explain it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's okay. But I think, you know, people that I really respect and admire have said, you know, that they follow it and it's really growing very quickly. And I think it's very unique and we have an amazing team. I can't take any of the credit for it. I have an amazing team that works on it, but everything that you see that is on our website or on Instagram is part of the work that we're doing. We just right. don't say who we're doing it for. <laughs> so right, we, right. Right. So if you see an article, but, but part of that is also, you know, the clients that, that come to us are, are asking us about active conversations that are happening today or about to happen. So we're looking at those anyway. So well, and that, example. that actually, that was, that goes yeah. into my next question, which yeah. is you're on LinkedIn, you're on Instagram, not on Facebook, didn't mm-hmm. see Twitter YouTube, TikTok. I'm on Twitter personally, but not for Cultique. But not for Cultique. And yeah. and so how did you decide where to have your external face? And um, you know, because and and when do you decide whether or not a platform is something you want to participate in? Obviously, there is yeah. where you're doing your research versus right. where you're where you're existing. And those can be two very separate places. Yeah. Um, but I guess one of the things I'm very interested in is where, how, what is it that makes it a platform you're going to, you know, you're going to sit on and pay attention to what, what's the, is there a critical mass? What is it? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I I mean, honestly, I think our, our feeling, our whole ethos at the, at Kaltik is be water, which comes from uh, Bruce Lee. And it's a Buddhist principle, which is about, um, Yes, going with the flow, but it's also being a little elusive and not locking things down so much, being very fluid and also a little enigmatic, which is why it's okay that not everybody understands the site or the Instagram. I'm not trying to explain or just trying to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think our feeling about social is very similar in that, you know, the, the reason that we have this, the construct that we have between the website and the Instagram, and then I'll talk about the other platforms is because we really, when we started Cultique, we didn't want to give ourselves more work to do mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms well, of- Well, like, and, and often it can, it can turn into that. So oh, yeah, and we're busy, you know, and we're all about efficiency and process and workflow and team management. It's a big part of why I've been able to grow and not add any staff. You know, we've doubled- um, in Q1 and Q2 over last year, uh, you know, part of that is because we just are like, let nobody wants to have another job. So let's just the work that we're doing. How do we funnel that into our ep- external expression. So that's the Cultique accounts. My own personal accounts on LinkedIn and Twitter are really more, um, you know, sometimes they're just amplifying stuff that we're doing on Cultique that I really like. Sometimes they're more personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I think, you know, you know me for a long time. I can't separate the personal from the professional. Those are two things that are very intertwined for me. Right. Um, and so on my accounts on LinkedIn and Twitter, I get to merge those a little bit more. Right. I was wondering what makes something something that makes you sit up and notice. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of somethings in that sense. Mm-hmm. But um, what I'm driving at is, you know, how do you source and identify those cultural insights? What makes yeah. this signal, not noise. 
Yeah. Well, that's exactly what we say to our clients that that's the value add, right? Is being able to extract. There's, we like to say we're in a, an era that is information rich and insights poor, mm-hmm. right? I mean, in fact, I just worked on a project yesterday and someone synthesized, you know, all the clients' decks and information and research and whatever. And it was still 10 pages of stuff that I had to reduce down into a cohesive cultural strategy and narrative that was like four pages. So, you know, that is a very specific skill set that I and a lot of my team have, which is that we're able to humanly process, you know, voluminous amounts of data and information and be able to identify, I think. Part of the secret spidey sense is saying, ooh, that's new or ooh, that's different, but it's not trend hunting. It's not trend spotting. It's not, you know, cool hunting. It's not looking for fads. It's because we've been steeped in, um, you know, a longitudinal look at culture, me personally, since 2008, um, which started, you know, I started in the culture business in the recession, which was a great time because so many things were changing that, um, you know, the legacy of which we're still feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that longitudinal, you know, 12, 13 year view, plus all the, you know, we are big fans of looking at the cultural history of a brand or a category or a person or whatever to understand, um, you know, where they came from and to understand where they're going. So for us, it's almost like this amazing body of living history that we're constantly scouring. And so when, um, you know, for example, a new idea, which could be a fad, but fad is usually just a symptom of a a, a different cultural issue, but like the word chuggy, right? Megan, my Gen Z specialist analyst, um, and she's also a digital media expert, you know, she, she, got onto that really early. She saw that a lot of YouTube influencers and TikTok influencers were using the term and she wrote up a piece about it. Oddly enough, my PR team was pitching it to everybody. And then a week later, Taylor Lorenz wrote about it, you know, and mm-hmm. then it's official when Taylor writes about it. So, you know, sometimes- well, you know can I just jump in one yeah, second here? Yeah. Because, you know, um, you said she was this Gen Z and this is, and she's got this cultural awareness. And so a question I have for you is, do you need to mm-hmm. be a member of a community in order to understand the cultural signals? You know, no, do you have she's to be a millennial? She's actually a millennial, but she's, she's a millennial a specialist. Yeah. What but about more, what about your BIPOC, what about your BIPOC, uh, you know, insights, you know, do you have to yeah. be black to understand black Twitter? Um, well, it helps, you know, and we have a very diverse range of um, analysts. We have, you know, I'm Asian, we have a half Asian, we have, you know, biracial, um, half black, half Latin, Latinx, we have an Indian American, we have uh, a black American from Georgia, we have a white southerner from Georgia, we've got a white um, young mom who was in Brooklyn now lives in Ireland. And then Sarah Unger is a white millennial. Um, you know, we, we use, so you do and, have diversity. You're, yeah, you're, you're team, we have, yes, we have 10, 10 people, um, you know, body type, political affiliations, slightly different, although we lean progressive, of course. Um, but, um, you know, different experiences that I think today it's interesting. We were talking 
um, about how, how we can be more efficient and who needs to be in what meetings and stuff like that. And, and one of the things I said is I like to have, I like to have as many of the team on a kickoff meeting with a client, because I don't want to filter what the client's saying through my own lens. Mm-hmm. Right. We are working on a lot of, I mean, as you can imagine, and we, and we're not in quote unquote, the tr- traditional multicultural space, but we are getting a lot of BIPOC projects and right. say, you know, I have, I have two analysts on the team who are very well informed from being in the, in the BIPOC community um, or being black. And so that's, you know, that's helpful because then I don't, I'm not guessing. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think fundamentally, you know, there, the issues that, uh, that people who are non-white are facing, many of them are very similar in nature. They're just different in manifestation. But mm-hmm. this idea of being othered is something that I think I've felt all my life. So mm-hmm. for me, that's not a new conversation, but mm-hmm. to bring in people who can give different dimension to how it's being processed and how it's being talked about and how it's being experienced is really important. And if we don't have somebody, for example, that... Um, you know, that can really speak to the audience, we will often tap an expert or an academic or someone who's working or a creator who's working in this space Mm -hmm. um, because we want, we do want to be as authentic as possible. Right. According to Spotify research, at least as it pertains to music, the digital revolution has made generational cultural cues more coherent than um, cross generational country-based cues. Again, this is within music. Are you seeing that with other trends? That it's that well, it, you have a global age versus a country. What are you? What are you saying? We, well, we take a slightly different perspective, which is interesting because I didn't know about that. But it's it's clear that people are finding that traditional metrics of uh, and measures of demographics are really, um, I think, pretty useless these days. We're actually we've been working on a model which is um, really one that doesn't look you know, we don't, we don't really care how old you are, what, how you identify, but what are you, what's your ideology and what are you interested in emotionally? Um, You know, right now we're in a place where you have a a huge divide in this country. And so that's a real tension in society that um, can't be resolved by demographics, right? You can't, it's not helpful. Um, But if you understand the ideology is different and then it's like, okay, well then if people are trying to rest back, you know, what they think America is and, and bring it um, to a less progressive age, how do they want to do that? Are they doing that by, you know, trying to attack the capital, um, which is a very disruptive way? Or are they trying to, you know, reason and be more calm about it and try to, try to you know, um, make things more stable again? So we kind of see like those two dynamics, um, emotion and culture really animating people today. And in, in fact, if you look at how Netflix um, serves up their tiles on their homepage, you know, usually there's a, a genre like reality or whatever, but then it'll say uplifting or it'll, you know, it'll have a mood on there. And we're in a place in a post-truth world where nobody can agree on facts, but we can agree on mood. And we're, mm-hmm. we've experienced over this last year, this tremendous collective emotion, right? Of depression, anxiety, angst, stress, fear, all those things. And it's probably the first time in a hundred years, the entire globe has kind of felt the same way. So it's kind of fascinating. And, and again, like demographics just don't cut it. It's too complex a world right now. Well, it's interesting that we have this unifying cultural event 
or experience at the same mm-hmm. time as it has never been more fractured in terms of right. audience. And so there's right. a nice dichotomy there. One yeah. of the things I like to do is make sure that listeners walk away with some actionable yeah. um, or strategic insight. So what should people be looking at to improve their own cultural literacy? Look at our Instagram. No. <laughs> Plug. My social media team's like, plug the Instagram, plug the Instagram. Um, you know, I think, I think it's interesting to look at voices that don't align with your own point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I, every day I try to read the New York times and the New York post and they're covering the same stories. And actually I'm the kind of person, like when a big event happens, like the Capitol riot or the election or whatever, I will not only do New York times and New York post and LA times, but then I will Washington post and all the you know, the big journalism sites and, and, you know, Politico and blah, blah, blah. But then I will also watch it on broadcast 630 David Muir. I will watch it on BBC, right? I will watch it on CNN. And because for me, the most important thing to understand about culture is there's not one view. And we get, you know, to your point about fragmentation and thank you, social media has really made it very easy to only listen to ideas that confirm your own. I think if you really want to understand the ecosystem, it behooves you to reach out to voices that are very, very different, right? So I think that's my answer would be seek out views that are different than your own to really understand what's going on. Right. Well, now, so that's sort of, it's an individual um, perspective, but if I'm at a company, is it possible to bake in a culture loop? And if so, what group, and this is a question that I've, I've encountered and, and talked mm-hmm. about. And so I'm curious your take is should, where should culture sit? Is culture mm-hmm. in marketing? In is culture in strategy? Is yes. Yeah. It, it, where both, where is, what is the functional place that culture should sit and also what level should yeah. it sit? That's a great question. I actually believe, and not that people necessarily do this, but I believe it's a CEO function. Because mm-hmm. I will tell you that, you know, one of the things we have done has been to serve as CEO whisperers. And that's a really important role because, again, a, you know, culture is a perspective. It's culture is an ecosystem. So a, comp- a business needs to have a perspective on culture. It can't own the whole thing because it's just too unwieldy. And so a CEO who sets the strategic vision of the company, I believe, needs to have or or prescribe what that company or that brand's POV on culture is. So for example, we divide culture into three different categories um, along a, a bell curve, right? So the things that really animate culture today are what people consider the zeitgeist, like the things that if you go to, you know, now that we can go to cocktail parties again, we can go out and, and socialize when you're vaxxed, you know, the things that you're going to talk about with someone that maybe you're meeting for the first time that you are trying to find some common ground in. Those are the dominant codes and cues of culture. The residual ones are ones that maybe used to be dominant, but they've they're, they've, they're fading into the background from overuse, right? So like when, you know, people 
kind of all hop on an idea and then it's not cool anymore. It becomes residual. It still may be very present in culture. It may make a lot of money. You know, you can think about, you know, a, a network like CBS with closed end procedurals and, you know, doing a really great job in the ratings and making a lot of money, but n- nobody in culture is really talking about those shows, right? They're not getting excited. Um, and then the other end of the bell curve are those new ideas, those changing ideas or alternative ideas to the zeitgeist. And so I think every brand, and every business, what we always ask them when we start to work with them is where do you want to live in culture? Do you want to be at the top of the zeitgeist? Do you want to be on the, on the, on the, um, you know, the border between dominant and emergent? Um, and those those borders are always shifting. So if you pick, we want to be dominant emergent, you have to stay, you have to keep up with culture because it's always, those things are always shifting. And I think that's the other thing that we've done since my days at Truthco that I think has been very successful is we really focus on those shifts. We focus on those changes. So you asked me before, what do I look for? We look for things that are changing. Mm-hmm. So something is becoming, um, you know, overhyped from overuse, then it starts becoming residual and not cool anymore or not dominant or something is, you know, there's a lot of, um, I've been paying a lot of attention to language, how language is changing um, in this era a lot because of racial justice conversations. Um, But, you know, even gender pronouns and things like that, I mean, language is really, really. It's so powerful in terms of framing the way we think, you know, that's always, and that's always been true back in, I don't know, early eighties, uh, the state university, they started instead of referring to slaves, they referred to enslaved Africans because it changes the way you think about, about, well, even if, if you look at, you know, the whole category of diversity, which we, um, you know, we call now sort of the POV having moved from multiculturalism, which was a, a white dominant, point of view and difference to what we call omniculturalism, which is um, differences is table stakes and it's centralized. And so um, everybody's different. You know, that kind of language also has led to um, to, to the same point as, you, as you're making is um, not making difference part of someone's identity. So you're, it's not you're, that you're a slave, it's that you were enslaved. It's not that you're somebody who, um, has you're not disabled, but you're somebody with a different ability. And that's even under contempt. One of the things I love about what you're doing is you're putting the focus on the fat data, the real people, real consumers, the things that aren't in a Tableau dashboard, which is important because the world is awash in quantification bias. But that said, this bias exists. So when you're talking to clients, how do you quantify the value of what you do? Or do your clients already believe in what you're doing? Our clients have drunk the Kool-Aid of culture, thankfully. So if um, I'm a listener and I'm listening to yeah. this and I'm thinking, I get it, but I'm, right. I've got to sell it up. Yeah. What do they, what's the language they should be using? What's the way that they get over that quantification bias? Yeah. Well, data is, is one aspect, right? Um, and, and I would say data and consumer insights are two things that we do not deal with directly, but our clients do. And they often, you know, we receive their data and their consumer research as inputs that we align or, you know, use as a, um, just another data point as we look in culture, but really the issue with 
data and culture and how they should work together. We really believe they're complementary. Data is great at predicting the past, right? It tells you what people did. It tells you what maybe what they did last night, but it's always um, in the rear view mirror. Culture is very much about where things are going. If you, if you understand as our team is trained to know where to look. And so because we're, but I'm really getting to what is the, like, if I want to know the ROI on bringing you guys in, what, what does it get me? You know, if I'm, if I'm thinking about pricing and I'm thinking about defending this spend to the CFO, right. What's the sales pitch? Well, our sales pitch is, is that you're not getting the full picture if you're only looking at data. It's impossible to quantify cultural, the value of cultural inputs, just like it's, it's very difficult to quantify the value of brand strategy because mm-hmm. it's all additive. But what we say, this is, this is the way I do it, and it may be a hedge, but this is the way I do it, is that if a client's going to spend you know, $50 million on a new show, Let's, that's probably even, that's probably, even that's, that's pretty skinny, <laughs> pretty small. So let's say they're spending, you know, $300 million on a new show and marketing and all that. Um, we look at them as like SpaceX or NASA. They built this extremely expensive one shot rocket ship, right? Mm-hmm. So we look at, I think from a fiduciary perspective, it is incumbent on companies to monitor the atmosphere in which they are launching that rocket. Mm-hmm. NASA and SpaceX always, you know, if they scrub a launch, sometimes it's mechanical, but sometimes it's because of weather. And culture behaves like a weather system in that there's a lot of different, um, you know, currents and shifts and pressure and all those things. And that's really what we're monitoring. So for me, that's really the way I would answer your question is I don't think companies can afford not to do cultural analysis. That's great. I love the weather analogy. I think that's Good. perfect. I love it. <laughs> Good. I mean, that's really the ROI. It's like, can you afford not to? But we, we tend to not, you know, play to people's fears or rather play to their hopes. Right. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak sure. with us today. Uh, understanding culture from a place of grounded uh, humanity um, <laughs> and, and not just the dashboard, not just the data. You know, no, I love, well, I love really seeing empathy. that. It's the empathy business, right? And it's human and it's really hard to, to, to elicit that with numbers. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Sure. Thank you, Gabriella. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next, and I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Nutton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.